Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to the FIC Focus podcast. I'm Ira Jersey, the chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. This is a Macro Matters edition. We'll be talking about global interest rates uh, with myself and Hugh Worthington. And later on in the episode, we will speak with Will Hoffman, who is an associate within U.S. Interest Rate Strategy, to talk about our interest rate introduction. Uh, Hugh, thanks very much for coming back on FIC Focus. So uh, we've had central banks uh, speak uh, both uh, with meetings and without meetings, and we've seen uh, moves in interest rates over the last couple of weeks, or in the case of the Federal Reserve, no move in interest rates, but with a uh, uh, signaling that there'll be one, maybe two more interest rate increases uh, sometime later this year. Um, you know, what if, Hugh, what effect has this had on your markets? And uh, m- maybe talk, start a little bit in Europe, and then we can move to the UK. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, I think we're still a little bit behind where you are in America over here in Europe. Um, back in uh, back, back in June, earlier in June, the ECB hiked rates to three and a half percent. Basically, they gave us a pretty strong signal that there were further hikes to come. And you know, we've seen inflation data out today, um, both in Spain and in Germany, which shows that actually inflation is not falling as fast as people hope. In particular, core inflation, core inflation in in, in Spain actually is reaccelerating again. And that's probably going to be a theme which you're going to be seeing. And it's also a theme, you know, there's, there's definite concerns um, in the ECB and with Philip Lane, who's the chief economist of the ECB in particular, about what's happening to wages in Europe. And, you know, strong wages means that that, that core inflation is, is getting hard to, to, to put away. Um, and as a result, I think, you know, they're, they're going to be probably hiking again. I think the ECB is almost definitely going to go 25 basis points next time. I think there's, there's a decent chance that actually by in the September meeting, um, you know, we'll get we'll get up to around the four percent mark um, from from the ECB. Now they'll, they'll, I think that's probably where markets think um, the ECB will top out. But in terms of what that means for yields, well, you know, uh, there are some cuts going to be priced in in about a year's time uh, from the ECB. But you know, if that probably looks about fair. But with with funds, two-year funds trading around sort of the three point one percent mark this morning, or a little bit higher. You know that probably leaves fair value, you know, versus where the, where the path of rates is going to be over the next couple of years, probably around 3.25, maybe to 3.4 percent mark for two-year bonds. So we're pretty close to to being at, at the fair value already uh, you know, in, in 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 the bond market at least. So in in thinking about Europe, um, you know, there's been dynamics that. Uh, really were scary in terms of energy prices and how high they went. And, and there was even discussion at uh, the uh, ECB um, Central Bank's uh, forum that they had in Portugal, where you had um, Christine Lagarde mention that the fact that the mild winter certainly helped inflation in, in Europe. Is there a concern that if, say, there is a, a, a less mild winter, that we could see energy prices go up and that affect uh, inflation and therefore monetary policy on the continent? I mean, that, that, that is always, I think the concern has actually moved on a little bit from that now. Obviously, if anything, actually energy prices are, are, are working the other way now. Energy prices are falling sharply, both in Europe and, and in the UK. So we're actually getting a, you know, a disinflationary impact. And then the problem is, is that other things have sort of you know, jumped up at the same time. Food inflation is still um, you know, running, running high. I think uh, last, last month in 
Germany you're talking about 13, 14% is food inflation, services inflation is picking up. And as I was saying, a lot of it's been driven by the fact that the wage but wages are pretty tight and, and wage growth is, is strong too. So we've probably um, you know, moved on from concerns about the the the, the, the fuel price effect. But actually, I think about the only thing at the moment which is actually going down is fuel. Um, you know, so we're getting now concerned about inflation in, in other areas of the of the, of the market, and, and and that's what's basically going to be driving policy going forward. You know, there's some jurisdictions in in Europe that, uh, at least over the last couple of decades, have been um, highly um, reliant on business-to-business uh, exports to places like China and and other places w- within Asia. Um, with China and some other economies in in Asia not doing as well as uh, it seems the, the the Western European and uh, and North American economies, is there you know it, it is it surprising to you that there still is this shift to inflation? Maybe shift into more services inflation like we've seen in the United States and indeed the UK. Um, is it is that seem to be, you know, shifting the dynamics in in both growth and and inflation in uh, in Europe? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously the country you're you're talking about there is Germany, and, and effectively, you know, the German economic model looks like a bit of a mess at the moment because it was being built on, uh, you know, relying on cheap energy from places like Russia so that they can make goods and sell them to places like China, um, and right now, in particular, investment goods and whatever things like that. And that, that does not look great at the moment. I and mean, the German economy is no doubt struggling. So uh, it's struggling quite, you know, quite badly. In fact, I think pretty much the only economy which has, hasn't regained its uh, pre-COVID uh, size is, is Germany now. So, so that, that, that isn't going great. But equally, as I say, there are other issues going on at the moment. And inflation, you know, the German inflation numbers today, you know, they, they from the various states and from the German state itself, um, you know, they came in and had where, where we were expecting them to come in. So, so, so that inflation is becoming entrenched. If you like, it's a stagflation. So, uh, you know, you've got very, very poor economic growth, but we've got inflation as well. And the ECB is, um, is, is determined to try and sort of stamp on that as best it can and, and, and stamp it out of the system. So, um, yeah, yeah, so, but yeah there, 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 there is economic malaise and actually certain, you know, certain other things as well. So in, actually, funny enough, in Italy, I was looking today at the... It's a bit of a strange thing to look at, but if you look at Italy, it's a similar story. If you like, to Germany, maybe not quite as as, as as severe, but if you look at sort of the M1 growth in, in Italy, that tends to lead the economy very strongly indeed, and that's just falling off a cliff at the moment. And the economy tends to fall off a cliff six to nine months later, but it actually sort of isn't coming through pop so much in, in the numbers that we're seeing just yet. So let's be before we go to the to the U.S. Let's go to the to the U.K. We heard Bailey speak uh, um, yesterday. I thought he was one of the more interesting uh, speakers, talking about the Bank of England policy, uh, both historically as well as potentially um, um, forward-looking. Yeah, you know, were, were there any comments that you think uh, you know led to um, any any shifts in the market reaction and or the market expectation for uh, policy rates in the U.K.? Well, yeah, I mean, Bailey yesterday really just reiterated a lot of the things that he'd been saying, uh, you know, when when the bank uh, hiked last week and surprised us all by hiking 50 basis points. And I think if we're talking about the situation in terms of core inflation and wage inflation being bad in, in, in Europe and certainly in, in America, well, basically it's on steroids in uh, in the UK. Wage growth is, is far uh, in excess of where it needs to be to see inflation come back down to, to target level. Uh, core inflation actually accelerated uh, again in May. Uh, it's quite interesting. What 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 um, Bailey when when the, the Bank of England has, has inflation running at, at over a certain amount over its target, 
he has to send a letter to the Chancellor of the, of the Exchequer and then the Chancellor replies. And, and it, in his letter, actually, he, he in particular um, highlighted how uh, producer price goods inflation you know, has an almost 100% uh, correlation with, with, with general inflation, and but it seems to have broken down at the moment. And, and effectively, that, that letter almost seemed to say, well, you know, if we're really going to get inflation back onto, onto track, we almost need to run the economy into a wall to do that, hence the 50 basis point price. Um, this hike that we saw saw last week. Now, I, I suspect that what's, what what he's saying is is that you know there's going to be more 50 basis point hikes possibly in August. Right now, unless something extraordinary happens in terms of the data that we see in the, in, the inter, intervening time, um, I think you know 50 basis points you know, should be being priced in August as well. And if that happens, then you know we're currently pricing six percent peak in the UK. I could see that going um, a little bit higher again. Um, it's a similar situation to, to Europe. The market expects that to be starting to be cut. Uh, um, you know, in about a year's time. But if, if that would start happening, you could probably see two-year gilts running up towards five and a half, maybe maybe 5.75%. Now, I think the curve will just invert enormously, so, so the longer the tenure and longer will probably stay pretty much close to where they are, are already. But, you know, I think there's, there's, there's certainly more pain to come possibly over the summer, um, you know, in, in gilts. So in, in the United States, you're seeing a, a very similar dynamic. You know, the Federal Reserve said, um, last week uh, that they might hike to, um, you know, close to 6%, um, talking about two more 50 basis, uh, 50 basis points more in hikes. And uh, the market's now starting to price for for some chance of that, particularly after the very strong first quarter uh, GDP revisions that we received on as we record here on the 29th of June. Um, you're seeing more inversion of the yield curve. It looks like we're probably going to test the, um, the, the uh, most inverted that we've been this cycle. Um, and uh, you, you see 10-year yields, you know, uh, approaching pretty important support up near 3.9%. Um, but it's really that that short end of the yield curve that continues to um, kind of drive a lot of the uh, a lot of the activity and certainly um, certainly these yield moves. And and you, you've seen that quite quite a lot in the UK in recent days as well. Um, do, do you think that there's anything that shifts the curve dynamics away from uh, away from flattening further? Um, my, my guess is, like you said, we're um, the the U.S. is kind of leading the charge, so the U.S. Uh, curve dynamics might shift before those of the U.K. or Europe. So, so therefore, do you, you expect um, or foresee more curve flattening in your neck of the woods? Um, yeah, I, I think it certainly. You know, when we could get a bit more flattening as we as we sort of go into that last hike, both probably in Europe um, uh, and, and in the U.K. But I suppose thereafter, once we actually get to that sort of final peak level of of short of policy rates. Then I think that probably that we could get some some re-steepening set in, but I think it probably isn't going to happen until until after we've sort of you know hit that terminal rate and 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 then a little bit of after that possibly. So yeah, so I think it's it's a similar very similar story to what's going on in the states, but probably a few months uh, behind you. So something that's been going on in the U.S. and it's kind of hard to explain. Um, and and if you look at the short end of the linker curve or or inflation derivatives, you're still talking about sub three percent two year inflation swaps. In fact, sub two and a half percent two year inflation swaps. Meanwhile, um, you know a lot of forecasters, including the Fed, but also professional forecasters and Anna Wong at at Bloomberg Economics thinks that CPI in the U.S. isn't likely to uh, to fall below three percent on a year on year basis um, until sometime in 2025. So 
um, you know, that's that's at least two years, if not longer away from where we are right now. Um, how have inflation dynamics and inflation linked product, um, how have they behaved in, in Europe and, and the UK? And, and do you think that there's any significant mispricings there? Like uh, like I've suggested that maybe in the front end of the um, of the uh, tips curve and, and certainly the inflation swap curve is probably a little bit too low compared to what's likely to be realized in terms of inflation. Well, the, the favorite, um, if you like, inflation market inflation uh, expectation tool that everybody likes to look at in Europe, um, certainly the ECB is the, the five-year, five-year inflation swap. Um, and that has been edging up again, and that's running at around 2.5%. So that's basically telling you that you know, inflation in five years' time, five-year inflation in five years' time is running at 2.5%. It's even higher in the UK. A lot of people made a fuss about that. The only thing I'll say about the UK is the UK has always had higher inflation than Europe. It's sort of structurally higher. So, so maybe maybe you know you shouldn't get too read too much into that. But I think the ECB in particular is going to be looking at um, that five-year five-year inflation shock trading currently at 2.52 percent versus um, a re- an all-time high uh, hit earlier this year of, of only about 10 basis points higher. They're they're going to be they're going to want to see that uh, that expectation flatten out. So yeah, um, we've actually gone through the reverse expectation if you like in in terms of the ECB's inflation forecast. The ECB is always uh, overestimated inflation for, for, for almost 20 years. And now we're going through, through the, the, the reverse dynamic of that. So I think in particular, I think if you want to look at anything in Europe, look at the five-year, five-year inflation swap. So interestingly, I was just looking at the five-year, five-year inflation swap in the U.S., and we've been range-bound between 2.1 and 2.4% um, for the better part of a year. Um, so, you know, clearly not a not a significant inflation worry on a forward basis at all in, in the U.S., and uh, even though it's ticking up a little bit in Europe, it doesn't sound like it's, it's particularly worrisome, at least at the moment, from a a policymaker point of view. And of course, part of that that is the expectation that policymakers are going to be successful, obviously, in taming inflation, right, where um, where policymakers will continue to, to hike interest rates if necessary in order to try to clamp down on uh, on the inflationary environment. So, so Hugh, anything else uh, of interest, anything uh, worthy of, of talking about in, with supply or budgets and, and how uh, maybe how, uh, you know, other central bank activities, uh, such as the runoff of the LTRO, uh, and, and all of the, uh, you know, balance sheet related items that central banks have been using um, that, that, you know, kind of is on your radar. Yeah, so we, we, we actually have proper QT uh, starts from, from next week in, in, in Europe. Uh, basically, all of the regular QE bought asset purchase program bought QE bonds will not be rolled going forward. Pandemic bonds obviously will still be being rolled. But so that, that can become the next stage, if you like, in, in, the, in the ECB running down its balance sheet. Now, the one thing I will say is, is that there's one dog that hasn't barked so far has been the the, uh, the spread concern I, in particular the spreads of italian government bonds um you know the 10-year spread right now is trading at 166 basis points that's pretty much at, at t- tight since qe was stopped a year ago two years is not so uh, so well behaved but the, it's, it certainly isn't sort of wildly massively wide and i think that's worth keeping an eye uh, as we go through the second half of the year as when qt starts in um in, in proper um why why is why have they been so well behaved i do wonder whether it's been a lot of it's been positioning there's a lot of signs that there's been a lot of activity in the italian market a lot of activity in the futures market a lot of activity in open interest pretty much close to record highs and i think you know we, what we had a situation is that the market's been concerned in particular foreigners have been concerned as qe stopped what was going to happen to italian spreads and and, and they started to position themselves for that so i think it's a big short base probably in the italian market non-residents over the last year actually sold about 45 billion but the one thing that has absolutely come to bail the Italians out is is, um, is 
investment, but basically retail buying. And over the last year or so, um, you know, we've seen about 100 billion euros of inflows from, from households uh, into the Italian government bond market. The actual BTPs, actually BTPs targeted purely at retail is just shy of 50 billion over the last year. Um, and that along with a little bit of continued buying from the Bank of Italy, because the Bank of it, because Q, QE hasn't completely finished, if you like, in Italy. So there's been a little bit of buying there, probably sort of 10, 15 billion euros. And that's been able to offset that sort of probably short position, short, yeah, short position that's, that's been probably in place from a lot of the foreign accounts. How long can that last? You know, it's really hard to say, but I think, you know, with Q, when QT does, does start to sort of, you know, weigh on, on those resin and possibly if households start to run out of capacity or start to sort of you know, run out of, of the appetite of, of buying at the pace they have and they have to sort of tap the market more, then maybe we'll get a bit of uh, uh, more pressure on BTPs as, as we go through the year. As I say, in particular, that that, um, re that M1 growth, the M1 element of, of growth in Italian economy, that leaves the economy sort of as night follows day. And just have a look at that. You can, you can, get, you can, you can download, download that on the terminal, compare it versus Italian government bond spread versus Germany. It's a great, great, um, relationship and it's completely broken down to Chile, but it's telling you that there's something, uh, you know, coming bad down the track with you potentially uh, later in the year. So you have a look at that. Great. Well, that was Hugh Worthington. He is the chief European rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Hugh, thanks for coming back on FIC Focus. Thanks very much for having me. And now we're going to go to Will Hoffman, associate in U.S. interest rate strategy, to ask me a question, whether it's uh, macro, micro, we'll find out in a moment. Hi, Ira. Thank you, as always, for having me on. So today's question is about stress tests. Given that yesterday the Fed announced the results of the Dodd-Frank Act stress tests, as well as the Comprehensive Capital Analysis and Review, um, could you talk a little bit more about these, uh, given the banking turmoil we had earlier in the year, as well as con Congress's focus on the banking sector's health at Powell's semi-annual testimony? Could you talk a bit about what stress tests are, what their purpose is, and if we have enough time, maybe the second order effects that these regulatory requirements have on markets? Uh, I'll probably spend a lot more time on the, the, the latter. So the stress tests were created after the global financial crisis in order to um, run various scenarios that the Federal Reserve kind of dreams up in terms of um, trying to determine where where capital uh, adequacy is for banks during those stress scenarios. Um, and, uh, you know, banks have to hold a certain amount of uh, additional equity capital as well as comply with a whole bunch of other regulations that we've talked about in the past, things like liquidity coverage ratio, um, the net stable funding ratio, which is how much liabilities they have to have versus um, uh, versus short-term liabilities, long-term liabilities, um, how much cash that they basically have to hold on their balance sheet and, and, and others. Um, there are differences in um, th these stress tests are generally done for the systemically important financial institutions, so the very large banks, um, many of which uh, are primary dealers. Um, so that's where their activity within the treasury market and, and the rates market more generally is very important. Um, so these uh, so these financial institutions, because they have to hold uh, additional equity capital, because basically their um, their ability to take risk at any given moment is significantly more. Uh, uh, more depressed than it was prior to the global financial crisis, it means that their balance sheet elasticity for their dealer arms is much, much more constrained. And because of that, um, you've seen 
uh, times when liquidity uh, just completely dries up in the treasury market and you wind up with both wider bid offers and significantly more uh, volatility than you might think because of any given piece of news. Um, and, and a large part of that is because of risk taking. In fact, um, just looking like we're right around the quarter end. Uh, so month end, quarter end, to half year end uh, in the United States. And when you when you look at what's gone on with the, with the market today, you didn't have news that you would expect to move two year yields by 16 basis points. Um, but nonetheless, you have these large interest rate moves. I think in in part, not not solely because, but in part because um, because dealer balance sheets just aren't able to accept the risk, both in notional value as well as as interest rate risk, uh, as they were uh, prior to the crisis. Now, admittedly, as well, there's other factors that are involved in in that volatility, like the treasury market being four times larger than it was, or now almost five times larger than it was back before the financial crisis. So so there's there certainly is our capacity constraints, both on the supply side and the demand side, at least the way that I look at it. But the, the stress tests are, are important to the banks because they do try to comply, make sure that they're going to pass those stress tests. And, and because of that, they, they definitely um, kind of adjust their books and, um, and the way that they run their businesses in order to ensure that, that they're going to get good marks from the Fed. Um, with that, we're at time. I want to thank Hugh Worthington and also Will Hoffman for his question. Uh, this has been the Fic Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. If you have any ideas for questions, topics, or guests that you'd like us to have on the show, please hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, I've been Ira Jersey. Until next time, be well. <laughs>